1: Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. We've been discussing here just how the world has changed through a variety of perspectives and generations from around the world. My guest today, Will Knocker, is third-generation Kenyan, Born on a farm in pre-independence Kenya, and brought up with an awareness and an appreciation of his natural surroundings, as his grandfather was the famous English falconer and naturalist, Captain C.W.R. Knight, and through often going on safari with his intrepid mother. I can't wait to hear more about this. As a young man at school in England, and then the Army, and matriculation at London London University, S.O.A.S., he returned home to Kenya in 1984. Will has worked throughout the Horn of Africa from southern Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia, but most of all in his beloved Kenya the majority of will's work is in the development field from tourism and wildlife and living and working from the maasai mara to the Tana delta and for the past fourteen years he has lived next to and worked in nairobi national park today he observes with concern kenya's collective effort to preserve this most beautiful and naturally diverse country So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, Will Knocker. Welcome, Will. It's a pleasure having you here.
2: Thanks so much, Ellie. It's really nice to be on your program and good morning to all your listeners, although it's the evening here in in Nairobi. Hi, everyone.
1: Well, welcome, and as uh, our guests on Our Wild World know, I bring in people from around the world, so sometimes it's a challenge to deal with the time zone. So here it's a bright, crisp early morning, and over there you're heading into what is a A dry warm evening as we were chatting uh, just before we started. uh, You were talking a little bit about heading into drought so I'd like to get into that a little bit more but first how about uh, give us a little bit of your history. Um, I gave a brief introduction so flesh that out for us a little bit.
2: Yes Ellie well I've been here as you said since 1984 all of my life really in the Horn of Africa So I'm pretty well traveled uh, around uh, this neck of the woods. South Sudan, I know very well, and northern Sudan. Altogether, it used to be the biggest uh, country in Africa. It was really, really interesting living there. And, of course, because of war, one can't go there anymore. So I was very lucky to spend the time there when I did. Also in Ethiopia, I lived there for a year and I've done a lot of work over time, Uh, but most of my time has been here in Kenya. I was brought up here on a farm, and uh, uh, I'm now still living in Nairobi. I was at school in Nairobi. I wouldn't have thought at primary school that I'd still be here all this time later.
1: Well, so um, we were talking the other day. So you live... Right next to right Nairobi, Nairobi National
0: Parks.
2: To Nairobi National Park. I do, Ellie. I live. You must come out next time you come to Nairobi. I live in the, uh, something called the Silole Sanctuary. It's a little, uh, small, uh, 400 acres. It's between two river gorges, uh, the Kisarian River, which comes down to the, from the Ngong Hills into the Empakasi River, which is the, the boundary, the southern boundary of Nairobi National Park. And uh, we're between those two rivers, so it's it's very rocky here, lava, and uh, it's it's about four hundred acres. We're on the right on the edge of the park, and so uh, this uh, boundary of the park is not fenced. So uh, we get all the wildlife that you get in the park, which is amazing, uh, considering it's a pretty small area, right in the middle of this enormous city that is modern Nairobi, which has about five million people in it. So it's really a remarkable uh, place to live and uh, I get into the park a lot but uh, yes as I'm talking to you now I can look out of the window and I might see a giraffe or something as I'm speaking to you.
1: Well I'm, <laughs> envious. I'm envious. I'm so envious. Let's back up a little and talk some about Nairobi National Park. It's one of the oldest parks in Kenya and as you just said it is smack dab in the middle of a very urbanized city. I'm, I'm I'm picturing kind of Central Park in New York with carnivorous uh, beasties <laughs> out there. So, and you and I had met many years ago, I remember our breakfast discussion with you, and I think it was William Deed and um, Mike Norton Griffiths and talking about the fence around Nairobi National Park. So, for it, is... As far as I recall, the park had not been fenced and there was a huge discussion going on. So when did it get fenced and tell us why it's fenced.
2: Yeah, a bit of background on the park, which is really is a fantastic place because it in the park you can see all the issues that affect us all over the world really. Urbanization, loss of habitat. All of that sort of thing. You can all see it close up in Nairobi National Park. You're quite right in saying that it's an old national park. It was founded in 1946, and uh, it is uh, 120 square kilometres. We're about 30, nearly 40,000 acres, which I'm sure is pretty small, especially in American terms. Uh, but um, there we are. It is there. We still have amazing populations of most of the wildlife that exists in the wider ecosystem, which is called the Arthikapiti ecosystem. And one must remember that this was the ecosystem which made Kenya in many ways, because the first Europeans and white people to come here at the turn of the 20th century, people like Theodore Roosevelt, they came on the newly built railway, and the railway of course in the city of nairobi started off as a watering point for the uganda railway way back about a hundred years ago and uh, that's how the city of nairobi started it was a a, you know, a, a a place to get water for the railway um and amazingly uh, some of this wildlife is uh, still the wildlife that one could see then, and which attracted a lot of people to Kenya, a lot of them to hunt the animals, unfortunately, like good old Theodore uh, Roosevelt. Um, the animals, can, most of the species can still be found within the national park, which is absolutely amazing. Meanwhile, the, uh, the ecosystem outside where the wildlife used to be able to migrate uh, in and out of Nairobi National Park, which is the northern extension of the um, uh, ecosystem, Arthikapiti ecosystem, that is being fenced off and developed and being humanised. I mean, this is the process that America went through in the middle of the nineteenth century when the Great Plains were fenced off and developed. So it's it's interesting to see it in the in the flesh here. So that, that's how it is. The, the, the park was never actually uh, fenced early. Um, what is happening is that it is still open, but the wildlife has nowhere to go to, as I'm suggesting. Instead, uh, people like me, but I'm not such an offender because I don't have a fence around my place. The people along the edge of the park are fencing off their properties and there are all sorts of development going on along the edge of the park.
1: So let me me clarify something for our listeners. Here we have a bustling modern city, Nairobi, in the middle, this acreage of wild land that is somewhat pristine, but I'm not going to say untouched by man. And we have a wide variety of species there. So um, the core concern in the fencing, some are fenced, some are not, is a subject we talk about a lot on our wild world which is human wildlife conflict. So um, the conflict of course usually comes from uh, carnivores eating livestock as I understand around that area is in Nairobi is a lot of Maasai land and that's pastoralism in cattle. So um, there was a, the, the big debate about fencing the park or not to create this corridor that you spoke of can you tell us a little bit about the importance of nairobi national park as a seasonal dispersal area and the 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 critical need for these corridors and where the animals are dispersing to and from
2: yes i can but unfortunately ellie we have to like so much when we're discussing nature we have to talk in the past tense because the dispersal area there was an effort to keep the migratory corridors open because the uh Arthicapiti ecosystem was huge. I mean, a thousand square miles at least, if not more. The high plains, it's a grass, one of the richest grassland ecosystems in the world, rather like the the, the Great Plains of America, like the Mara Serengeti ecosystem. Uh, We had a hundred thousand um wildebeest uh, in this ecosystem. There are a subspecies called the eastern white-bearded wildebeest. There were estimated to be 100,000 of these animals, and they used to migrate around the ecosystem using the northern bit. That is what is now Nairobi National Park. This is where there's permanent water. So in a very dry year, as this promises to be, or might be in Kenya, uh, they would come in in their thousands. Well, we're now down to between six and eight thousands of these animals of our subspecies of eastern white bearded Uh we've got only got about four hundred and fifty in the park so you see where the the, the migration doesn't exist anymore and uh, the wildlife of our ecosystem ecosystem is primarily uh, in the nairobi national park there is quite a big area of ranch land uh, to the south of the River to Namanga Highway, which is the Kenya-Tanzania Highway. Of course, that highway is a terrible uh, barrier to the movement, free movement of wildlife. So we have uh, the national park and a small dispersal area to the north of that Kenya, Tanzania Highway, and to the south of it. There's some more of these gnus I'm talking about, and there's some other wildlife, including cheetahs, which we have lost from Nairobi National Park, where there used to be plenty, uh, and uh, that is the situation now. So the park is very much by itself now, and it's it's been very interesting. You know, I've lived here for 15 years now, And um, I have watched the the park when I first got here. There were a lot of wildebeest, and they were still moving in and out of the park. But no longer. They're now confined to the park. That's all that remains in this fast-growing city of Nairobi.
1: There's so many things that have just sprung to my mind from what you said. You've just given, pretty much in a nutshell, as you said in the beginning, uh, an outline of what is happening in wildlife-rich areas across Africa. Human population explosion, wildlife being um, forced into smaller and smaller containment areas, whether fenced or not, and losing these corridors. And what losing the corridors does not only to... um, the wildlife movement, you said the wildebeest don't migrate anymore. They do still migrate through Serengeti and Maasai Mara. I just want our listeners to be aware of that, but they don't have this further dispersal area. So the other day we were talking in terms of a, let's call it secluded park. Some would call it an island zoo or a fenced area that would require a different Mm. kind of management than a larger wide open spaces, but you'd you'd mentioned uh, the shift in biomass. So we went from um, hundreds of thousands of wildebeest down to 400 and you say um, you see giraffe out there. What what else has changed in the biomass? Did as the wildebeest left, who moved in? Was it people or was it a different uh, species of wildlife?
2: Yes, well, the, the park is, I've never seen so much biomass in the park. It used to be migratory, of course, Ellie, going in and out of the, from the, the, through the corridors you were mentioning, which don't exist anymore, to the dispersal area. But now all of this wildlife that remains on our side of the highway is all confined to the park. The outside of the park, there is some rangeland there, but it's being fenced off and it's very overgrazed. There's so much competition between cattle and wild grazers, of course. However, uh, conversely, I mean, I think one has to get a proper picture of the park. It's not a natural ecosystem as it used to be. Mind you, it, sounds, uh, it, it serves in a critical situation as a wonderful oasis for many, many species don't forget that nairobi national park is the and was the or it has been over since the 1970s when our black rhinos you know we have our east african subspecies of the black rhino the browsed rhino that is it's called Mycoli, and it occurs here in east africa and that uh that uh, species of a rhino they were always here in the park and when the, the, all the terrible poaching rhino holocaust took place in the 70s, another one is taking, now, taking place now, of course. When that happened, the Kenyan wildlife authorities bought a lot of rhinos from wherever they were threatened into the Nairobi National Park. And uh, this is, was a reservoir for these animals, and now they've been taken out to such uh, other sanctuaries, such as the Lewa Wildlife Sanctuary, and many other places where rhino, there are now protected rhino protected areas all over Kenya. So that's our big claim to fame: is the black rhinos. But everything from crown cranes, vultures, as you know, so many things are in sharp decline. Populations of birds, animals, amphibians—you name know, it. You know what it's like in the Anthropocene, alley. everything's on a downward uh, uh, spiral but uh, here in the park it's such an oasis and we have incredible numbers of vultures tiny area you're talking about the mara serengeti that's 500 times the size of our little park but then nonetheless it's habitat where these animals from rhinos to crown cranes to hearty beasts which are uh, animals which uh, are adapted to living on long grass plains, where wherever their their cattle, these cattle graze the long grass plains, such as the Arctic ecosystem with long grass habitat. Well, it isn't long grass anymore because there's such grazing pressure. So our hearty beasts are doing very well indeed at the moment.
1: It's amazing, these shifts in, in the microcosm that you can see right out your front door. And it also goes to show our audience or help our audience understand that Wild places can exist in very small areas and within urban communities, such as Nairobi National Park or Central Park or our small pocket parks. And here in the U.S., as we go about celebrating the 50th anniversary of our Wilderness Act, people can get a better understanding of why these wild places are so critical, as Will has just talked about. Even if it's not a the connected historical landscape that Nairobi National Park used to be, it's still critical in terms of uh, preserving habitat. Your main knowledge, Will, is in indigenous botany. And uh, you had also helped, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about this, grow a 34-year-old indigenous forest on Kenya's coast. So maybe we can get into that a little bit after the break. But um, as a botanist and watching... The, the plant life and the, th- all the life that supports these, let's say the umbrella species, the rhino, and everything underneath the rhino that the rhino helps supports How do you see this, this, this shift? Um, what will the park be able to support in the future?
2: I think the park will be able to support good numbers of, of everything. I mean, everything's got, all the species, uh, species numbers have gone up, curiously enough. Because everything's confined to the park, it's now becoming a short grass plain habitat, which is not so good for the kongoni that I was mentioning, but excellent for the for the uh, gazelles and the gnu and other short grass plain specialists. But don't, uh, we've also another apart from the the rhinos, of which we've got about 50 to 60 in in uh, Nairobi National Park. We also have a lot of lions. And uh, traditionally, there was the famous scientist Judith Rudnay, who studied the lands of uh, the Arthi Kapiti lands and those within the Nairobi National Park. She came to the conclusion there about 30, was the sort of median number that the ecosystem could support in the park. And where we've now currently got 40 lions, so we're 25% over right now, and they're having the time of their lives because uh, there's plenty, before it was seasonal, a lot of the wildlife would move out in the wet season. But now there's wildlife all, all the year um, uh So, then, but of course, the problem is that right on the boundary of the park are lots of cattle and the Maasai. And so there's quite a lot of, uh, of human wildlife conflict. If the ca- ca- uh, the lions do venture out of the park, they do kill livestock and they are killed in turn. So that is a problem for the park. But it's not too bad because there's so much prey animals for them in the park itself.
1: Well, this is amazing. I mean, it really is a microcosm. We've covered in this first section of the program, uh, basically a nutshell of what is happening, whether it's large landscape or small landscapes, what happens over a period of one generation, let alone three generations of evolution, um, and to see it within the human time frame, that timeline, 15 years. So it's it's a good clue for our listeners to understand just how much can change in a small period of time, uh, a short period of time, the life of your child, so to speak, of what we can protect and what we can have... um the fear or the, the possibility of losing. So stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Will Knocker, and we'll be right back after the break.
0: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Will Knocker. Uh, third-generation Kenyan who is living as we speak and talk right now right outside Nairobi National Park. So before the break, Will, um, we talked a little bit about uh, your uh, specific interest which is indigenous botany and working on a forest on the Kenyan coast. And uh, this is critical, our forests, not, not just anywhere in the world, but in Kenya, especially because you were talking about drought before and the importance of forests. So tell us a little bit about this forest and what you were involved with and why it's so critical.
2: Yes, uh, Lee, I think um, that this uh, question of conservation, whether it's Nairobi National Park, which is 120 square kilometers or back. About- Kihaan Forest, which is what my family has on the Kenya coast, at a place called Watamu. And uh, there we have we had a beach plot. My parents bought a beach plot many years ago in 1963. That was actually the Kenyan year of independence. And they bought this beach plot, and we, we've lived there ever since. My parents uh, retired there in 1980, and behind the house there was a lovely patch of indigenous coastal forest, and behind that it had all been cleared. Because in the 1950s, when these uh, uh, plots were were sold and divided up, uh, you know, Kenya is a very virgin country and it was all bush. So people just cleared their plots to show that it was theirs, which was, of course, a a terrible thing to do. Because all this very unique habitat, our forests at the coast, uh, Kenya coast and East African coast, this is one of the biological, one of the biodiversity hotspots on the whole globe. We have... Incredible flora there, for instance. Anyway, we had a coconut plantation there, all the natural bush being cleared. And my father, to his great credit, he was a keen naturalist, and he said what we really need is to, to keep it as close to uh, its original uh, nature as possible. We need the butterflies and the birds. We need habitat. And so we've left it for 34 years, Got kept the invasive species out, which is a terrible problem out uh, problem and uh, plant that uh, done a lot of planting including uh, butterfly food plants and things like that and this has been going on since 1980 which i think makes 34 years and you should see the result earlier it really is wonderful so i urge everybody listening you know you need to in your own backyards keep everything natural if you can, keep the indigenous uh, indigenous trees, Uh, be aware of butterfly food plants and all the other insects which need nectar plants for pollination and so on for their food and birds of course. You're not gonna get birds without some indigenous uh, vegetation around you. So that's what we've done and I would urge everybody else to wherever you are, even if you live in a city, you can do something for nature just around where you are. And, of course, avoid all the pesticides and all of that. That doesn't get us anywhere, does it?
1: Well, we've seen where but- it's gotten us, and it's gotten in, gotten us into a mighty mess in terms of all the manipulation we've done. So you bring up a really good point. We need to keep... Our, our natural open spaces, as we call them here in the U.S., whether um, rebuilding them or rewilding them or protecting them because they're critical in, in the services they provide. You just talked about the insects. I think it was Jonas Salk who said, in 50 years time, if we lost all the insects, humanity would disappear. In 50 years time, if hum- humans disappeared, the earth would flourish. So we, we forget sometimes how critical when we're looking at a forest or we're recreating in a national park. Here it's hiking, there it's not. It's a it, it, different kind of recreation in Africa. And we could talk about that a little bit. But it's not just looking at it for our, our sense of beauty. It performs a function. And these functions are very critical. And you see it really up close and personal when you're living like Will does on a on a national park boundary or have worked throughout so many areas with people and conservation throughout Africa.
2: It's astonishing. Yes, I think, I think we have, we Africans have a lot to teach you Americans actually, Ellie, we need to simplify things. You know, your way of life over there in America, it's not sustainable. And uh, here in Africa, of course, people are still living traditional lives, not suggesting that you uh, live in uh, in the wattle-and-dove uh, houses out there. <laughs> but we the can certainly simplify. But you can simplify, and you can watch your habitat, and you can change your habits. No pesticides. One doesn't need all this stuff. I believe in something called future primitivism, which is basically keeping everything simple and uh, keeping materialism out of it. You know, these shopping malls don't get us anywhere. I think it's much better to have the corner shop and we need to get back to, you've got the space in America to live more simply in, and live in the simple way that you used to live. These huge urban areas are not working. That must be very obvious to all of us from listening to the news.
1: Well, I think it's very obvious to people outside of the U.S. that our lifestyle is not working for us. You said something the other day when we were chatting that really struck home with me, um, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember it exactly, but the key of it was that, you know, we have this whole continent to ourselves, so we have a tendency to forget there's other life ways, there's other countries, there's other politics, and there's other ways of doing things than turning uh, from the east coast to the west coast, north and south, from Canada to Mexico into one giant strip mall, as you'd said, or box store. Um, as you'd said, we're um, sort of losing the point in in terms of fulfilling our lives with stuff and living nature through TV, uh, as opposed to walking out our door and putting down the smartphone and actually participating in nature and seeing what it is like to live with that. I think you'd said it perfectly. Africa has a lot to teach us. And instead, what we're giving away is this American dream, which is bypassing everything that Africa has at its core that we here in the U.S. love so much. It's wildlife, it's um, its land, it's natural beauty.
2: You're so rough. Right, uh, Ellie. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm, I'm sure we agree on all of that. But we do have to think very carefully about these issues, because literally, we're, we're thr- threatening the planet nowadays with our different ways of life. And of course, I live the Western way of life, uh, not so different from you Americans over there. So I'm not saying you, it's, it's us, basically. And we do have to learn how to simplify and keep the habitat around us and respect the other living creatures which live around us wherever we we may be in Africa or in America.
1: Absolutely. Um, And you and I agree that this doesn't, changing our lifestyles and making some sacrifices doesn't mean we have to go live in a cave and be without our technology or TV or smartphones. What it means is to live more conscientiously and be aware of our role on the planet as another species, and our relationship, which is um, a little awry right now, to the rest of the world, because we're having a relationship with and ownership of stuff and people, as opposed to living on the world. So this brings me to another point, um, since we're talking locally and about changes individuals can make. That's all we can really be responsible for is what we each do every day and our goal in life. Um, It brings to the matter local conservancy levels um, and perhaps that gap between government and management levels. So you're very involved in community-based conservation and uh, the economics of that. Let's talk a little bit about that and some of the work you've done.
2: Yes, I I wouldn't say very involved, Ellie, but I have been involved in the place that I'd like to talk about. Uh, I'm in Nairobi, and if we go west from here, down into the Rift Valley towards Lake Magadi, you go to the bottom of the Rift Valley. It's a beautiful place. It's where man was born. It's where the early hominids lived and evolved. It's a magnificent uh, landscape. You have the Rift Valley on one side with Highland Forest on the top, so not unlike uh, Colorado I suppose where you are with the Rockies and then you go down to the dry plains below is it like that
1: It's so yeah um landscape wise I see a lot of similarities and in terms of fossils and history uh right out my back door not 3 miles from me one of the latest um most recent uh peat bogs was uh, on earth with mastodons and woolly mammoths and great sloths. So it's, it, it's a tremendous find. So yeah, here in Colorado, we have a lot of history, of course, not where man was born, but um, where a lot of things used to live that were a lot bigger than us. So right here on, in my backyard, I can see how over the eons, uh, this landscape has changed one from woolly mammoths and mastodons to urban and ski slopes.
2: Yeah, no, it's not like that in the riff Valley Down there live the pastoral Maasai, still living the traditional way of life, you know, which Abraham lived, uh, uh, as described in the Bible. And, of course, pastoralism, people live with their livestock, and they move from place to place, looking for grass and water, just as the wildlife does. So the pastoralist way of life goes extremely well with the needs of wildlife. So down there, uh, it's, there's a very large uh, group ranch where the Maasai live, Lordok uh, Ilani Maasai. They're very traditional people, live in their traditional... Uh, villages. And that area, there's a river called the Wasanira, and it's a very rich a- uh, area for wildlife, incredible biodiversity. There's elephants and all sorts of other, in fact, everything you can think of in the panoply of African uh, um, mammals and other creatures. There are no shopping malls there. It's a very, tr- a very wonderful unspoilt. Landscape. So down there, the 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 the, the Maasai live with their livestock—donkeys and and sheep and goats and cattle. It's pretty dry, but they've got the river, and the the river ends up in a swamp, the Wasanero swamp. So they have a sort of uh, reserve area during dry spells where the cattle can graze and wildlife, of course. So I went down there in 2000, and we started up uh, with a friend of mine. Started up a sort of trailblazing eco. Tourism concept, but it's it's been very complicated and it hasn't and ended well uh, because uh, the the the, the uh, my friend who was the sort of uh, the person who set up an eco tourism project down there uh, it all started with great fanfare was a tremendous success and even Bill Gates stayed there and everybody one eco tourism. Reward, uh, awards but unfortunately because because money was involved uh, there have been some conflict of interest and now the lodge, that beautiful lodge that he, he built Champoli Lodge is now empty and in ruins so it's been and gone but what I want to concentrate on is the uh, conservancy which he created with the Maasai uh, which is for the Champoli Conservancy, it's 10,000 uh, hectares in the middle of this rangeland, at the bottom the floor of the Rift Valley, which I've been describing. And there, when I was there in 2000, uh, 15 years ago, I go down there regularly, by the way, 14 years ago, I mean, uh, that when I was there in 2000, did a survey of the whole place for the original investors. Uh, we there were about five lands in that area. There are now over seventy, so you can see how well that conservancy has worked.
1: So, do, um, I'm I'm a little speechless because like six things <laughs> came into my head at once. You said so much important information there. One, it brings to mind the cons- what I like to term conservation colonialism, um, and I wa- don't necessarily want to bring it to a race issue black and white but I want to bring it to black and white in terms of foreign aid European this concept and um, an understanding of what an area an ecosystem might need and how we can build it and bring in tourism which is what Champolet started out to be and then it crashed so it begs the question why did it it, crash and then why is it coming back so beautifully now that the local conservancy Uh, constituency is involved let's let's see if we can understand that gap between the building of it by someone else to the actual taking it over and taking it on and being responsible by those who actually live there
2: well it's 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 all about the balance because this is the where two worlds meet where the American tourist people who might be listening to your program might be planning a safari to Kenya hopefully very safe, by the way, listeners. Um, uh, But we desperately need tourists because they bankroll. We can't run a conservancy unless you have an income. So these conservancies don't work unless there are tourists. So talking about the sort of uh, relationship between the local people who live in these areas and have this incredible wildlife resource... And they're very poor, so they really need tourism to bolster their pastoralist way of life. You do need a sort of middleman, which is the safari operator, I would argue, to, to, uh, to bring the tourists to that area. So the balance lies in the middle. The owners of the, the land and the people who live with the wildlife and the people who are benefiting from it, they have to get benefits from them to encourage them to conserve this wildlife. The Maasai pastors, they have cattle, they don't necessarily want lions, unless the lions are bringing in lots of tourist dollars, which enables them to educate their children, and to, you know, everybody needs money, don't they, Ellie? So, there is, it, the balance is between the two, and I do want to mention here, you know, Kenya has these protected areas, which were, many of them were, were begun in colonial times, and many of them since independence and they these protected areas are so important when i describe to you later if we talk about wildlife in sudan and ethiopia and somalia they don't have these big protected areas like we have in kenya and tanzania and which is a colonial legacy uh, it's actually the idea came from america originally so uh, that is important balance is very very important so they need us, and uh, they, the the local people need us, safari operators, and we need them. But the point is to make sure that everybody, including the wildlife, and that's the key thing to me: benefits.
1: Well, you've just nailed it. It's it's a web. We all need each other. So the more, the sooner we get it together and realise that we have an impact, working with each other, and that impact. Translates down like cascades and dominoes to the habitat that we humans occupy along with wildlife, so you bring up a point um it's been an argument or a debate uh for many for as long as I can remember, and the it's sort of i'd call it two diametrically opposed points of view or not points of view but uh ends of extreme one is who owns the wildlife. And does there always have to be a dollars and cents benefit as a result of wildlife? So what you've been talking about today and what I'm hearing is there's been tectonic shifts in across Africa and even in the small scope of Nairobi National Park and the places that you've worked, that um, it needs dollars and cents. Kenya needs tourism. Despite all the the terror going on in our headlines and news, Kenya is safe um, unless you go walking out and decide to encounter a lion, though that's usually the dangerous part is living with the wildlife. But um, where do we cross the line to uh, a European value of the aesthetics of wildlife and the intrinsic value of keeping wildlands open to that dollars and cents that is required to keep it running?
2: Yes, it's a tricky one. That I would say that the, the, the here in Africa, the people need the money because it's a, a useful tourism. It's so important to the Kenyan economy, for instance, and we're really suffering from a lack of tourism at the moment, which is a real problem for our conservation. It's really key to, to get tourists coming back to Kenya in order to pay for the conservation. For ordinary people living where the wildlife lives, such as the Maasai in southern Kenya, where all the wildlife is, in Amboseli, in the Mara, in the Champoli Conservancy that I've been talking about. Uh, this, 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 it, it's about the money. They need tourists. And so this is so important to keep the flow of tourists coming through Kenya in order to pay to keep this habitat and to keep the, the wild creatures that live there safe.
1: So we've really just heard it direct heard from, it direct from, uh, from uh, Will, from- the, the understanding of what tourism does, that it's not just about going and fulfilling a lifetime dream of seeing the big five, but if we want to see those big five, we being the Western culture, Europeans, or those who do not live with Africa's unique uh, species of wildlife in such masses on the planet and still free roaming and wild range then we need to pay for it because usually where this wildlife rich areas are is also um deeply into poverty and we won't get into corruption at this moment um i often talk about how much money in foreign aid is going into uh East Africa or Sub Saharan Africa and we wonder where it goes. But with the Safari Goer, you can be assured as long as you choose an ecologically and uh sustainably friendly uh tour operator, then your money is going to go into that local conservancy. So go to go to Africa, people. It's it's all still there. Uh you won't see wildlife anywhere else like this. So we'll we're talking about some of these benefits and uh, the, the economics of conservation and wildlife. So you talked earlier that you've been in Sudan and you've been in Ethiopia and there they've lost some of the wildlife, but there is still some there. Can you tell us a little bit about the the changes or the disparity of what you has, have seen happen over the years and perhaps some lessons to uh, move forward up? Uh, I'm sorry. We're going to pick that up right after the break. We've got to break away for a second. So, my guest is Will Knocker. This is Ellie Weiss, and we'll be right back.
0: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. W I L D I Z E dot O R G You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Will Knocker. We're speaking from, uh, he's calling in from Kenya today, sitting outside Nairobi National Park and through the course of the show we've been talking about Will's life and how he's seen uh, the changes over the past couple of generations that he's several generations of from his grandfather to his parents to now and looking at what is currently going on in Africa and why um, and how we can turn things around. So, Will, you've traveled to Sudan and you've traveled to Somalia, so you have a wide perspective of how things happen elsewhere, and you've traveled to the U.S., and you have a very good understanding of what is a little bit awry in our uh, Western civilization, American dream of life, and how that is a bit disparate from what's going on on the ground with local Africans on such a huge continent. Tell us a little bit about some of your travels and the parallels that you've noticed.
2: Yes, well I've been very lucky because I've been uh, lived my life in the Horn of Africa here, some of the biggest countries in the world really, Sudan and Ethiopia. These countries are huge, they have huge uh, diversity of habitat, especially Ethiopia, fantastic country full of endemic species, that's, of course, the Tibet of Africa. Amazing place, but it's an extreme a country It's extremely old. Uh, 3,000 years old. The Aksumite civilization, which was a, a pre-Christ civilization connecting uh, Yemen, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, and Ethiopia and East Africa. Uh, they're people. There are now 70 million people plus in Ethiopia course they can only live in the highlands and there are a lot of uh, uh lowlands and deserts in ethiopia as well but i i lived there for a year and traveled in all these eco zones. i went looking for wild ass down in the deserts of the Danakil desert down in afar land in eastern ethiopia that was interesting but alas I didn't see any wild ass, I saw, uh, we found summering's gazelle and some ostrich uh, but uh, alas, the the, the, the wild ass are very rare, difficult to find nowadays. Up in the highlands of course you get the walia ibis, the Ethiopian wolf and other species but the problem with Ethiopia is there are people everywhere and the, there are some protected areas but even in these protected areas there are people. So there's always great conflict, and these rare species are down to a few thousand. There are a few, just a few thousand Ethiopian wolves in the whole world. The uh, wild ass is nearly extinct. Uh, the gelada baboons are uh, in small numbers, and they're, they're grass-eating primates that live in the highlands of Ethiopia. Their numbers, you know, they're threatened by there's so much... Uh, uh, Livestock in Ethiopia that they eat all the grass that the geladas need. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yes. It it, <laughs> it it brings up what I talk about, and I'm so glad to hear you bring this up spontaneously. Yes, listeners, we did not pre-discuss um, what we're going to talk about. We always have a bit of an outline geared toward my guest's perspective and expertise. But what we're talking about here is a global issue. And um, a lot of times in the uh, scenarios that we come up with to help conservation along and protect species, I don't often hear the human equation put in there, that we have to find a way to limit ourselves. Humans have to limit ourselves. Um, with the definition of the Wilderness Act, basically what it meant was there are wild places that are have intrinsic value and are governed by their will as opposed to the will of man. So how do you think will, in terms of places like Ethiopia that have uh, such masses of diversity, but also such masses of people, how, how do we go about engendering this self-limiting will concept for ourselves when there's such poverty around?
2: Uh, I think uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, but if you have tourism, of course, Ethiopia is such a beautiful place, wonderful for tourism, the Tibet of Africa, as I, I, told, I said earlier, I do urge your listeners to go there if they can. It's a fantastic place. You get human culture. It's very ancient uh, culture. There was Christianity in Ethiopia before there was in Britain, for instance. So it is a fabulous place to go. Also, this fantastic wildlife. They do have protected areas, but there are people there, and there's a terrific pressure on the land from all, uh, from all angles. So it, it is difficult there. Uh, down, uh, what's happening at the moment, Ellie, is Ethiopia is a huge country, And down in the south, there's the mighty Omo River, which flows into Lake Turkana, which is a massive rift valley lake in northern Kenya, in the deserts of northern Kenya. And what is happening is that the Ethiopians are building a massive dam, which is called the Gibe Three Dam, on the Omo River, which is threatening to kill the um, whole ecology of of Lake Turkana, and it's uh, slated to fall by many meters. This desert lake, of course, so important to the people who live in that very dry part of Kenya. And there are a lot of indigenous peoples, the, the people who live in South Omo in, in Ethiopia. They all depend on the Omo River, and this river's going to be strangled by this massive dam, one of whose purposes is to generate electricity to sell to Kenya. So this is going to be an ecological disaster, and not least for the people who are very traditional, who live in the South Omo region of of Ethiopia. They're pastoralist peoples, very traditional um, people like the Mursi, the Hamar, the Karo. Uh, I've lived, and we had the global pastoralist gathering in, in this part of Ethiopia back in 2005. It was an amazing event. Uh, but I've traveled in those areas, and I really fear for what's going to happen to them once this ribbon of light, the Oma River, is dammed. Uh,
1: you, you speak of um, a place that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I, had, I was fortunate to be able to do a boat trip with a, a common colleague of ours, Steve Turner, Uh, with east uh, origin safaris it used to be east african ornithological safaris but he took me up uh, with a small group of people up the omo uh, before the dam and the dam was in the works and it was stunning and what will has to say about these peoples in this this area there is nothing else on earth like it You might find similar tribes and similar waterways and um, similar scenarios where people are so dependent on this main um, water source, but you won't find the culture and the beauty and the amazing people and good hearts. I'm going to say good hearts of, of the Mercy and the Hammer and the people that we met up there, yes, they live very traditionally, and that sometimes uh, doesn't ring well with our culture. Some of the things they do, but is that really our business to say yes or no to how they live? But um, with th- where is the Get- the the Gebby Dam right now? Um, I know there is a lot of uh, goings on and movements by local people up at Lake Turkana to put a stop to this dam. Um, you, you so far given us sort of a grim outlook do, what where do you think this is going to go do you think we'll get it together and and uh understand i think
2: i think, I think it will be i think it's very grim, Ellie, and i'm afraid it's a done deal the, the 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 dam is nearly built they will use up all the water the omo river will be compromised and so will lake takana and all these indigenous uh, people will pay the price. I'm afraid I mentioned earlier that living in Africa is rather like living in you know the great plains of America back in the 19th century and the poor indigenous people will pay the price and they won't be able to live their uh, traditional way of lives. The central government in Ethiopia doesn't really care about them. They want to industrialize and to have electricity to power a new, of course Ethiopia is a terribly poor country they have a, a, a different vision but it doesn't include uh indigenous peoples or uh the environment of the south omo region of uh, ethiopia unfortunately and scandalously because there's no reason why you can't have both you just have to do your you have to make sure that your dams work and enough water is released downstream to to allow the natural ecosystems to work whether that will be the case and they might have planned to that and I'm not a complete expert on this. I can, all I can say is that I'm extremely worried about it. Of course, all that water, as you know, ends up in our Lake Turkana. And without water in Lake Turkana, well, what's going to happen to the Turkana people and all the people who live around that great lake, the Jade Sea?
1: I work with a lot of people up there outside of um, Loyangolani. I have for 10, 15 years. So it's it's astonishing to see um, the massive shift that is taking place. So it brings to mind a a sort of a converse conversation that's out there that if we remove the rural lifestyle, the pastoralist and, um, the small farmer and get them urbanized and settled, whether it's moving them to cities such as Nairobi, which couldn't possibly handle the influx of people. Um, or help settle them where they are with such uh, projects as the Turkana Wind and Power, and bringing infrastructure and jobs, hopefully in situ, to these areas. Do you think? What do you think of that argument? If we r- urbanize people, then we can sort of get them out of these landscapes that need protection, um, or... Do you think the rural, urban, excuse me, the rural pastoralist lifestyle is better on the land because of the more holistic movement, seasonal movement, and following the resources as, as they used to?
2: I think uh, that pastoralists, as you were saying earlier, these people, uh, the pastoralists, they deserve their way of life, and people should, should try to preserve it. Uh, not to preserve it so that they live uh, traditional lives forever, change is inevitable, but it's, as I mentioned earlier, getting the balance right. They can have the Gibe Dam, they can generate electricity, but they must consider the interests of the people downstream and they must help those people to use new uh, methods of irrigation to, uh, if you like, sort of uh, uh, get involved in the new scheme of things make use of the opportunities presented by perhaps the water that is dammed in the dam but it's a long way a couple of hundred kilometers up the river from South Omo Uh, but you have to give them a chance to change you certainly don't move them off their land I think that is absolutely criminal there's no doubt about it though, these are people as you know you've been there living almost Neolithic lives who are coming face to face with the 21st century and we see this all over Africa but I would do want to move from Ethiopia perhaps to South Sudan and to a more sort of positive point of view because Africa is so huge, Ellie, and you know that in the Congo where I've never been, you know, the great Congo forest is still there providing amazing um, uh, services to the planet as a whole as far as the climate is concerned. I lived in South Sudan, sadly at war now. But in the Nile Basin, of course, there, in the what used to be the Boma National Park, which is a very wild corner of Africa. I've been there and worked there. And here, that's that's where you have this uh, enormous migration of the white-eared cob uh, following the levels of water and the, the greenness of the grass generated by the fall and rise of the Nile and its tributary, this very, very flat uh, part of the world, the Nile Basin. It's rather like your uh, migration of caribou in the Arctic and the uh, migration of wildebeest in the Mara Serengeti ecosystem. But that is that habitat is completely pristine. No dams, no people, no shopping malls, no nothing. Just massive marshes full of wildlife, amazing birds. And it's estimated that despite the Civil War, there's still over a million white-eared cob and many other species still migrating through this uh, incredible African landscape. So Africa is so enormous, as is America, by the way, that we mustn't get too darn There still are these wilderness areas, which we haven't got to, and we need to preserve them and do everything we can to keep them alive.
1: That. Well, you've given us an incredible nutshell of what's going on, and yes, uh, we have a lot of wilderness areas left here. I think what's what we're catching up to, what is critical right now in, in terms of our human time frame and the years that we're dealing with right now, I'm talking about the next two, three, five, ten years, that we have to um, understand, and I think here in the Western world, where we're losing our wildlife or lost it, we don't have it in the numbers, you have it in Africa anymore, that we are understanding the, the value of connected wilderness areas and corridors. So that brings me to the point that many of the people across Africa live in substandard conditions. That doesn't mean they're disconnected. There is cell phone, there is internet, there is computer. But how do we instill... Maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, How do we generate uh, through access to information to these people that live in these wild places uh, the the aesthetic and intrinsic value beyond the dollars and the cents in their wallet? Of course, that's a a critical part. But how do we encourage people who don't have the same access that you and I and a lot of the developed world has that these lands have intrinsic value, that they do run and generate the Earth's ecosystem functions. How do we how do we build that up? We've got a few minutes left here. So um, you've given us a bit of a grim outlook, but there's also optimism. How do you how do we pull this together?
2: Well, I think a very good example, but it might be devoured by its own success, is the is the, the Mara uh, National Reserve, you know, the great Serengeti Mara ecosystem. Of course the Mara is one of the great wonders of the world and everybody wants to go there and do. And there you see more wildlife than you can see anywhere else on Earth. I worked there for two years, by the way, early in ninety five and ninety six. And my last job, I was actually working for the Maasai. I was manager of about 350,000 acres of uh, community land to the east of the Mara Reserve. It was incredible. The numbers of wildlife were just incredible. Everything you can think of. It was a wonderful year of my life. But now uh, things are changing. That part of the Mara is being divided up. Yes, with lots of uh, tourists going to the Mara. It's one of the most popular tourist destinations in the whole world. People can flock in there in August, this time of year, August and September, to see the wildlife migration. But with all all those tourists going there, you need massive amounts of tourist infrastructure. There's so many lodges and hotels, and in a way... Uh, the Mara is a victim of its own success. There are major challenges for it. The only good thing about the Mara is it is part of this much greater ecosystem, which is, you know, is absolutely huge. Um, Serengeti Mara is, you know, 50,000 square miles, 50 times the size of our Nairobi National Park where I am here. So let's hope that its very size enable. Wildlife there, all those there, over a million wildebeest there. Let's hope that they they have a home there, and into the future, and that people can continue to go there and pay for them to be there. Because I do think that this uh, right now in Africa, you know, we need the tourist dollar. That is what we really need in order to uh, conserve this incredible natural heritage that we have here.
1: Well, what you've brought us through today on our our conversational journey is why we people need to connect with the nature that supports us and that we need to understand its importance for its own aesthetic value and its economic value of that it gives us the ability to stay alive and that tourism... Uh, in any wild place is going to be critical economically because it it is, whether it's the United States, Canada, Russia, or Africa, these wild places are going to be what brings in economic, and dollars for the people that live there, the benefits of living with a wild place and wildlife. So, Will, I'd like to thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to coming to visit you. And we've got... Um, uh, well, it looks like we're out of time. So, uh, my listeners, you can find Will on Facebook and, uh, you can also join the conversation on Our Wild World on Facebook. And you can always call in or send us an email at wildb4u at wildeyes.org and stay tuned. We'll have a lot more guests coming up. And Will, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you so much, Ellie. Lovely talking to you and wishing you lots of many regards from from, me, from lovely Kenya and uh, wishing a good day to all your listeners over there in the States.
1: And thank you, and you have a good night, and I look forward to talking to you some more. And that's it for this week. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest Will Knocker and Our Wild World. Mm-hmm.